Hi listeners, Delaney here, assistant producer of the Sausage of Science podcast. Today we present part two of two in conversation with Dr. Josh Snodgrass. If you missed part one, check out last week's episode. president of AAPA yet, but you've been an officer at HBA several times and are now the president-elect for HBA. So one, how do you fit all that in? And two, what role do those positions play in this sort of design of research that you're talking about? I mean, some of it is intentional and some of it is I've kind of got pulled into things. And so, you know, I, I, I have Dennis O'Rourke to thank for pulling me into AAPA and organizing the meetings in Portland back in 2011, right? 10 years ago. Um, and so part of that was just like, wow, this is a cool opportunity to hold a meeting here. And we thought it would be a wonderful opportunity to showcase our growing graduate program. We made that decision to be involved. I guess for me, I just, I, I, I like to be involved. To be honest, I don't really like like being this sort of figurehead or the person, I don't mind being in charge, but I don't like being sort of out there as like, Ooh, you're this, right? And it's like, no, it's all about doing the service. It's about the work. And I have obviously a lot of ideas for things that I want to do in different organizations. And so, you know, I just feel really strongly about contributing. And, and so for me, I had really good experiences first with AAPA. I went to my first AAPA meeting as an undergrad and it was just really invigorating. And then um, as a first year grad student, I went to an HBA meeting and it was equally interesting and engaging, but the piece that stood out for me was just how kind everybody was. And I think I may have met you know, besides Bill Leonard and Allison Galloway, who I knew from from my my programs, I think it was Gary James who you know I met first. Who you know, as you all were were doing your 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 show a few weeks ago about him. You know, it was just such an incredibly warm person and just so friendly. But others, including Dan Brown and, and various others in the discipline, like were just so welcoming. And I just felt like it was such an amazing home. Like. That I, I got in and, you know, like I felt like in some other places where I present data, you know, like I get grilled immediately, especially in the paleo world where those were like my first, you know, my first talks. And it was like there literally was a line of people waiting at the microphone to grill me. And then I go to, you know, HBA and it's like people like raising their hand like, I've got some data to help you. Right. And I'm like, what? <laughs> What did you say? So, you know, I think because it's been such a welcoming organization that I always felt like it was home and a place that I wanted to give back. And so, you know, I, I loved APA. I did really about like eight or nine years of intense service for APA, including being, um, you know, vice president and chair of membership and stuff like that. So I think in some ways coming, this feels to me like coming back to HBA. I've been involved, obviously, for many years. But it feels like, okay, I'm done with APA for a while right now. Um, and, you know, I can invest more in HBA and, and actually really enjoy, you know, getting to know new people and, and kind of reestablishing my relationship with HBA. So one of the really interesting things that I think a lot of people noticed when in your, uh, your HBA what, like campaign profile, it's not a campaign, but you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> the election profile, whatever it's called. Yeah. 
that you listed your ACEs score. And for those who might not be familiar with it, it's the uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences uh, score. And a lot, you know, a couple of friends and I like noticed that we talk about it, like that's really interesting. And so I know that's a super specific question, but I'm kind of curious as to what inspired you to include it. Uh, and if it's, if it's also something you think more people should do in, you know, when running for positions of power. And, and Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I went back and forth in my own mind. I probably should have talked to people and asked them about whether I should do this or not. But, you know, I think, one, I, I teach about ACEs and health and things like that. So it's, you know, definitely something that's important to me from an intellectual standpoint. I guess the other is, you know, I feel like the people who are leading organizations, we should know about their academic but we should also understand their motivations and who they are as people, right? And so I think often these kinds of statements are all about your PhD on this, you know, this year and you published this and okay, great, that's really important, but it's missing something, right? And so for me, you know, I think, you know, we've got this, obviously this growing attention to diversity of perspectives. And so I, I think for me, I really, I really take that very seriously. And, and so when I think about this, I think about who I am, you know, how I come to this and sort of my perspective on things, including my perspectives on leadership and helping run an association. And so, um, you know, I, I definitely have a number of people who kind of just assume that I kind of came from like an upper, upper middle class background, you know, where I was helped in, you know, in long tradition in the family of going to university. And, and I didn't, I didn't have that. And so part of it is kind of just like, okay, I, I understand this both intellectually as well as personally. I think the other probably most important thing is I just meet so many students who have similar types of backgrounds, you know, where they're, they really don't want to share that, right? And certainly I didn't as well, right? I mean, I didn't like the fact that I went to community college. You know, most of the people that I met were like, you know, had gone straight into undergrad and had excelled. And I'm like, is it a bad thing that I went to community college? And so I, I think as I've become, you know, more comfortable in my own skin and also, you know, kind of in a different place academically, I feel like oh, I can own this more. And it's important for me to own it for my sake. But then it's also, I think, really important for students who are like, wow, I thought I was the only one. So, you know, I think just making it okay that people can have these backgrounds and, and that we really, I mean, I feel really strongly that we want to incorporate people with the, that back, those backgrounds, right? As well as other perspectives that, you know, or other, you know, experience in, the, in their lives that give them perspectives on things, right? I mean, I think the attention to gender diversity and racial and ethnic diversity and international diversity, all so important. And I think with just this growing appreciation that we should be focusing in on what are the vantage points? What are the, what's the baggage? What are the perspectives that people bring to our field? So yeah, I guess that's all, it was all there in those, those that, 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 that little acronym. I think that's, that's fantastic. I, I didn't even catch that, but it, it definitely resonates. Um, you know, I, I spend every the, the, sort of the beginning of every semester wondering how much of my personal story I should tell students because they're always they're always the same age. I'm always moving away from them. I'm like, oh, everybody knows this by now, but but no, they don't, right? So, mental health issues are always on the front burner for me. Talking about addiction stuff uh, and my history with that is always on the front burner for me. And I think especially with the pandemic, because I'm seeing, you know, the recent shootings, right? And I'll just throw out there, this is on my mind, because 
I know there was a shooting. I mean, there have been a whole shit ton, right? There was one in Indianapolis, and my sister every day. Yeah, my sister knew two of these people. So let's let's remember that these things are are like we're all in a pressure cooker, right? Um, they're closer so, to home than people. It, it's always close so to easy home. to dissociate, but it, they're much closer to home than yeah, a lot of people realize. Super, super easy, right? So it could it 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 could be in your neck of the woods tomorrow, right? We talked to to Adam Johnson several years ago, and and the shooting took place in in his classroom. So COVID has is going to change everything for all of us. That's that's obvious. Um, you've already started to retweak some of the ways that you you teach classes. I'm starting to think I just finished up intro to BioAnt yesterday and, you know, brought us into the modern human diversity thing. And I still have a slide up there about measles. And I was thinking I need to talk about COVID probably, right? I talked about it, but the slide was still measles. So I'm wondering what, what you're doing to sort of re, you, you already mentioned your lab, but what sort of other structural overhauls has, has COVID either inspired or forced on you? Yeah, this has been wow, such a such a crazy, such a hard time for so many people, and and um, I think for me, really, a couple of things are working on change. I'll talk about my teaching in just a second, but the other piece that that I've really spent a lot of time with is that um, early on, so I guess probably starting in April of, of last year, a group of us, maybe five of us, um, including a few of us who have that training in epidemiology and health really jumped and and created um, this organization you know within the university that you know initially called Corona Corps which essentially was a way to help our um, our county and our state respond to COVID right and and so we knew immediately that the county didn't have the, the person power to be able to deal with the, the growing caseload and I think Many of us, when it started to get bad, we realized it was going to get a lot worse before it got any better. And so we created this this group, this structure, and, and spent a ton of time over the next number of months building it. But essentially, it is this group, um, mostly of undergraduate students from the University of Oregon, but also connected with some of the local community colleges as well, and essentially training them you know, in, in all the things that they need to be a, a contact tracer, a case manager, a case investigator, and then launch this at the beginning of July. And all of these students are paid. All of these students are also getting academic credit free from the university for their training. And then also they have opportunities to do some sort of an internship that's free in terms of the, the credits that they're doing. So we managed to negotiate that. And so we started with, I think, 15 or 16 of them. And by the end of December, I think we had 75 paid people who, you know, so we've been able to hire them managers and, and it's fully integrated with our county. So it's Lane County and Lane County Public Health. And so they're doing, I mean, all of the work within the university community. But then also, I think at some point we're, you know, well over 50, if not 75% of all the, the contact tracing work in the entire county. Um, and so we've been doing that. We've been growing it. Uh, we also have some really exciting news, which I'm not at liberty to share yet, but essentially is allowing us to then expand this program beyond this area into some of the poorer, more rural parts of the state and start to rebrand as this Oregon um, Public Health Corp. Because nobody wants to talk about COVID or coronavirus anymore. I mean, we want to talk about, you know, the 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 diseases like that, but then also thinking about STIs and other major issues that we struggle with and will continue to struggle with. So that's been pretty cool to plug students into that, including some of the students that I work with 
in anthropology, but students from across the entire university. So that's been incredibly rewarding to feel like actually we've done something that's really meaningful and has helped actually, you know, what's going on in terms of health situation in the, in the county and the state. And then with the teaching piece, you know, I, I ended up just, um, I, I had been in an, an administrative position for almost five years at the university. I've been splitting, you know, this is advice for mid-career people, don't do the administrative thing, right? So I was an associate vice provost for the university for nearly five years. And I kind of rotated out of that at the end of last summer, which was great, but it went right back into full teaching load and I'd stacked my teaching load into the fall, figuring that I could get it much, much of it done with so that I could really then, you know, have some time for writing in the spring. And so I realized that that just, you know, I was going to have to spend a ton of time with my teaching just because everything was different, right? The context was different and then the delivery of lectures and things like that, all of it was different. So I really invested heavily in the fall in rebuilding my courses. And I, I was teaching, um, the human growth and development course, and then also my introductory evolutionary medicine course. And so I've always had in both of those courses, um, a couple of threads that were really useful for connecting to this. I mean, one was the social determinants of health piece that was always present. And then another was kind of the applied piece, like how we take this information and how we apply it to real world situations. So for me, it was really easy just to beef up those areas, right? And really connect to students, you know, around social determinants of health and, and, and in the context of COVID, right? So I could use these examples with what was going on, you know, in the current setting and, you know, and really make this stuff real. And so, um, yeah, it's been, it, it went really well. I mean, obviously it was really hard, but rebuilding those courses to really have these threads just made them really real. And I mean, the added benefit is I have all these students who come to take my classes because they're like pre-med or pre-health sciences, you know, they really want to go into medicine, they really want to go into nursing or something like that. And all of a sudden they're like, Ooh, research, right? Wow, this is the first place that I've seen somebody who understands, right, the, the social piece. Like, you know, so much of medicine is still all about this idea. Like, it's about the biological, right? It's, 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 it's all about that. The reality is, you know, most diseases we're talking about, it's first and foremost driven by some societal social issue, right? And so I think we do that very well, right? And, and so I think, you know, really paying that attention helps them potentially be better doctors, but potentially pull some of them into our world, makes them want to be whatever, PhDs in, in human biology. So that's, that's been really cool. And then, and then one other thing I wanted to mention is in, in last term, I taught a new class. I'm supposed to teach a new class and I was thinking of aging in human biology. And then I thought, you know, if I'm going to make a new class, why not make it more topical? So I did class on emerging infectious diseases and pandemics. And I taught that last term. It was great in terms of pulling together these various different pieces and, and really talking about the contributors to emerging infectious diseases and pandemics, not fully about COVID, but everything helped them understand COVID. And, and so including, I had two weeks focused in on HIV and AIDS. And it was just amazing to have people who were, whatever, 19 to 22 for the most part, learn about HIV AIDS, which you know, my generation lived through, but their generation didn't. And like all of a sudden, like, oh my God, like this happened before? Like, wait, why weren't things fixed? You know, back in the 1980s and 1990s, and now we're dealing with these same problems, right? It's like, it was an amazing class. And I have to say that 
even though it was hard teaching on Zoom, you know, and have it in the context of, you know, the pandemic and the challenging social and economic stuff that we're dealing with as a you know, society and as a world. I have to say, it was like literally my favorite class that I've ever taught in 20 plus years of teaching. And it was just students were so engaged and contributing so much. It was just such a joy to teach. So as much as I'm not teaching this term, you know, and I'm happy about that. I also miss the fact that that student engagement this year was just, it was just amazing. I feel so lucky. I empathize with this so much as I take my teaching very seriously and I put a lot of time and effort into it as well. But with the pandemic, so much more time and energy had to go in because, you know, we shut down entirely this time last year. And then of course, Notre Dame face to face, but having to do dual mode for students who are in quarantine and then those who are in class. And so it really did make me rethink my teaching modalities and how I'm delivering information in different ways and then incorporating students to engage them on different levels. And it seems like that has very much happened to you as well, where you've rethought not only your teaching, but also teaching mentorship for, for graduate students and early career folks. And I know you have some ideas about this that are going to tie in with your, your election as president to the HBA. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that teaching mentorship part and then and how you see shifting things in the HBA as well to meet those needs. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've always, I've really always invested in my teaching. And sometimes I've even got the advice that I shouldn't do that, right? That I really should be focusing more on my research. And you know what, like, uh, that's just, I mean, I'm, I'm, in part at a at a this university at a public university because I want to teach students at a public university as much as that can be hard and as much as I'm in an R1 university and very focused in on research like it just it matters to me enormously to the, the teaching role and so I've sort of always had that but I think even more so in the pandemic realizing that we can help connect students to you know, to to the world and interpret the world in ways that I think we don't realize the power of that. And so I think just involving students, giving students a window in, into so many things, I think is so, so important. Right? So I've really been rethinking things, um, especially ways that that people can then make change in their own communities or in their own world, right? There's the academics, but then there's the engagement and 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 advocacy and activism and things like that. And I think we can put those together in, in ways that we often thought we couldn't. I do feel like, you know, with the teaching piece of things that like teaching has always been important to me, I think in large part because I wouldn't be able to do what I do without that, right? I got brought in and inspired and, you know, and supported in, in many ways and I want to give back, right? And so I've been doing that my entire career, at least trying to do that. But I think, you know, many of us, I've noticed this when, when I've talked to people who are, you know, in an older generation, me, and they're kind of retiring from their academic jobs, and almost to a person, they say something like, yeah, my research was important to me, but I realized that my biggest contribution was actually through my students. And I, you know, that is so true. And it was something that I really thought was so important very early because of my own personal experience. And so I think we need to do better as a discipline of supporting, you know, uh, you know, our, our faculty as they're, they're investing in their teaching and helping support people in doing the job that they do in terms of teaching as well as they can, right? So I do think a thing that could be done with HBA is really finding ways to, to reach out to people, to help people, to create sort of repositories of materials for people. I mean, like, I'm really happy to share my materials for my teaching. I do that regularly. But why don't we do this, you know, in a way that's like, hey, here's some great examples of how to teach this. 
And that's like freely available, right? You give credit to that person, but teach it in your own classes, right? So I think there's a lot of things that we could do to, to grow the association and, and the appreciation for teaching. And then also really support us, but also our public outreach that comes through teaching undergrads. I love that. Sorry, Kara. Oh, I just wanted okay. I just wanted to jump in and say that you know we we've been beating this drum of of uh, research service and teaching are not extricable. Uh, even though our our institutions for a lot of us they give us quantities of, of each, and and I take my white male prerogative and just barrel straight ahead and do all of them. And that's that's sort of the way I've always done it. Um, and I don't necessarily advocate that everybody else sort of assume a white male prerogative because I, I recognize that that is that is my privilege I'm able to to do that with but I one I'm, I'm super happy to hear that two I want to say when I started offering we started teaching anthropology in elementary schools here I realized that's like the most important thing I've ever been involved in everything else has just been the fun stuff I get to do and I'm reminded of what Jim Binden who is a professor emeritus here and a former an HBA member parted us by a sort of setting up, which was, even though I inherited all this Samoa and human adaptability stuff from him, he had started teaching a class on race and decided and, and realized that making sure people understand that race is a social construction with biological implications, but not evolutionary ones was the most important thing he could do. And he would offer that class every semester all the way until just very recently. So I, I really am excited to hear that initiative. And I want to, I, I hope we do more teaching and, and course type of stuff in our, in our meetings. Susan Johnson has been lonely presenting on hers. And, yeah. and I think when we start presenting more as senior members, our students will feel uh, more comfortable with that sort of variety. And I want to echo this as well as as the junior person on the Zoom, the, the this pre-tenure person here, the impact I have on my students feels like it'll always be more important than the impact I have in my research career. And part of that comes from my website. Like I can see the metrics that anytime I post, you know, a new research paper publication, whatever that goes up. But I also have a teaching section on my website with all of the activities that are both for in-person and online and all of the assignments and the number of hits that those yep. get on my website versus the research aspect. It's stunning. And it's very obvious that there's a need for exactly what it is that you want to do, Josh. And, and you know, that's make these have a a, a central location for, for folks who are teaching human biology courses where they can all come to rather than having to like find my particular website or your particular website or Chris's to, to then like cobble together all of these different sources. So, you know, you'll have two people happy to support you. It'll save everybody a lot of time, right? right? Which is ultimately what we need. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. So no, that sounds exciting. And I, I, you know, from that teaching part of the HBA, what other plans do you have for the HBA or thoughts do you have moving forward as you will eventually become the, the president or take the office? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to develop two specific plans now, right? I mean, I think I've got, I've got a little bit of onboarding time. The other thing is, I mean, I would love to hear people's ideas too, right? I mean, I have my ideas. Um, and they're evolving, of course, but I really want to hear from people. So if anybody, if anybody has ideas, please feel free to reach out. Just drop me, a, drop me an email. But I, I guess, you know, I, I mean, I think the teaching thing is important. I think finding new ways with science communication to the public, right? And I mean, I think this podcast is fantastic. And I think we should really be thinking about different ways to do that. Um, certainly the, the diversity perspective, I think really matters.
resources. And I think for me, you know, a lot of it is the pipeline to this, right? And, and you know, and I've been really involved in those efforts with AAPA and thinking about what you can do in terms of supporting people and creating programming and creating a pipeline. And I think, you know, we could do a lot more in terms of thinking about how we create a pipeline for human biology graduate programs. Because I think, as I was talking about before, there's a lot of undergrads who are very interested in these topics. And oftentimes they're unhappy with the options that they see in terms of medicine and things like that. So I think we could find lots of ways to inspire people and channel them to, you know, to our meetings, to our, you know, journal, to our, you know, various different ways of looking at the world. Um, and then just figuring out ways to make our meetings even better than they are. I mean, I think our meetings are fantastic. They've been a home to me since like 1998, literally. And, um, and I miss the fact that, you know, we didn't have an in-person meeting in the last couple of years. So, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of the ways that I think about, you know, diversity is it's very multi-part and it's about a supportive environment. It's about support in so many different ways and, 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 a, and a very broad sort of big tent perspective on what diversity is. So definitely that's it. I would say another piece that's really important to me, and I don't necessarily have ways that I see changing things right now, but it's, you know, I, I will be looking for ways to do that is, you know, I've always, as I was talking about before, I mean, I love HBA, it's always been a home, to, but I've always felt like the intellectual breadth of AAPA was something that I really have always loved. And I really think that I'm a better human biologist because I have an understanding of primate biology and paleoanthropology. And I feel like there are ways that we have intellectual breadth in human biology, but I think there are ways that that could be expanded, both towards the AAPA, other aspects of biological biology, but also towards the sort of biocultural, AAA, applied anthropology, medical biology realm. And so I think I'm, I'm going to be looking for ways to broaden that out and build better connections with those different groups. And so, again, this is an area that I would love to hear people's thoughts um, in terms of ways to do that. But it's definitely, that's a really important thing. I think we need an ethnoprimatology with like human animal health outcomes session. Just because I love like the ethology, is, am I getting the the rightology? Listen, ethology like that that the kind of the human animal interaction. I could be wrong. Now I have to Google it while we're doing this <laughs> <laughs> because um uh, like Jeff Peterson teaches that class here about like human animal interactions. Oh yeah, well I I you know Augustine sort of yes sorry yeah. with some of that and mm -hmm. and I I, yeah. I I yearn to be in that area. I would love to. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, of course, it connects to other areas of biological anthropology, but it also connects to archaeology yeah. as well as cultural anthropology. I mean, we've got some really cool classes here at U of O that actually look at these relationships back into the past, right, into historic record and prehistoric record. So I think there's lots of cool ways to do that as well. I 100% I agree and, and love all this. And at the... Um, I, I could keep going on, but our podcast then would be like three hours. So <laughs> let me let me let me wrap back around to, to where we started. Uh, not necessarily dog's feet, but just uh, the rest of the human. Um, so, Josh, it, with all this going on, right? Uh, talking about the keeping our students safe and and mental health and all that. What about you? How are you handling everything and keeping your head? above water uh it, this is one this is a way of asking like what do you do for fun besides all these other things 
Yeah, besides taking pictures of the dog's feet. Um, yeah, I mean, I this is a hard time. And I mean, I, I don't want to say that I've achieved balance or that I've achieved like true mental health because this has definitely been a hard time, especially given everything going on in the job, but then also as a parent. I, well. I'm, Tammy Duckworth said this eloquently. There's no such thing as balance. So let's just throw that out the window and just ask, you know, if you have fun in your life, what, what does it look like? Yeah, I, I think in regards to balance, like, I, yeah, it's, I agree, but it's it's very much like continued pursuit of balance in my mind, right? You don't ever lose that, right? Because if you lose that, that's, that's a problem. Um, in terms of my own ways of, of keeping sane, um, you know, certainly a lot of it comes through my daughter. I've got a, a almost 11-year-old daughter, and so that sort of arts and crafts and stuff like that with her, I absolutely love. Um, for me, probably my favorite thing to do and most relaxing thing is cooking. So I have this kind of crazy dream of someday I'll quit my job and this won't, this won't be in my, during my HBA term, I promise, but, um, you know, quit my job and open a food truck. And so I'm kind of always thinking about and trying to make recipes for that food truck. So that helps me, yeah, with the stress reduction, but then also having a perspective on something that's totally different than my day job. You are so I, in, oh, I was going to say, you are in good company with the cooking here, as we've had yeah. so many people on the show who are really big into barbecue and mm. smoking meats, and I, I personally love smoking meats so much. But anyway, sorry, Chris, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, like, we need an initiative or, or like, a, uh, I won't say we should voice this on the HBA, but I, my, my, one of my sons is going to Auburn, and their engineering program has a semester abroad, and in that semester abroad, they're not allowed to study their major. So one of the reasons that he was attracted to Auburn was they had said one student had done a semester abroad in Italy going to culinary school, which is now exactly what my son wants to do. And I'm like, that is the best, yeah. that is the best way to structure an undergrad program or a grad program, in my opinion, I've ever heard is to force that semester in something completely different. I would be willing to, to foist upon the HBA a barbecue contest during some <laughs> annual meeting. <laughs> I think that would be fantastic. Yeah. A few years ago when we were setting up the AAPA meetings for LA, which didn't happen last year, right, but are going to happen in the future, we actually set it up so that the opening reception would have food trucks. And so, you know, they, they come and they park along that. So I think we need to find a way to, to bring food trucks and barbecue competition to, yeah, to an HBA meeting in the future. I love it. I love it. And I guess to, to wrap things up, I guess kind of two real quick questions of one, do you have anything to advertise if you're looking for students uh, or postdocs? And then kind of part of that is what's next for you looking forward? Uh, we know what's going on with HBA and that you're, you're invested in teaching in this public health aspect in the state of Oregon, but what else you got going on? Yeah. So first, um, yeah, I, I am looking for a graduate student, so I would love to get applications for, for next year. We're still trying to figure out funding. We've been very committed to funding our graduate students completely here. So we, this year, we didn't end up taking graduate students, but I anticipate we will next year, and I really, really want to get a graduate student. So definitely, if you're interested, reach out to me. Um, and then also, just to, to say this again, I would love to hear people's ideas about what we should be doing for HBA, and especially especially the student voices. I would love to hear those as I think through what are, what are my thoughts. Um, and then in terms of what's next for me, um, I, I actually am really, in some ways, as much as this has been a hard time, it, I feel like we're coming out of some of the really hard times. 
I'm also done with this administrative position that I was in for five years and took a ton of my time. And so I'm really looking forward to, you know, to finishing up some projects as well as starting some new ones. So got actually a Three, a set of three papers that are all on biomarkers that are going to American Journal of Human Biology. One, me leading it as what a drop can really do, which is the sequel to the what a drop can do paper. And then one being led by Teresa Gildner that's looking at the use of uh, point of care devices to be able to get at biomarkers. And then another former student, Felicia Matamenos, is leading another one, which is focusing in on point of care application, but essentially the really foregrounding the practical and the ethical issues that this brings up, especially when working with remote populations. So that's kind of the stuff that I'm working on now. And then the long term, I'm, I'm starting to work on a couple of book projects. So it's the first time that I've ever done this, and I'm pretty excited about this. Um, one that I'm working on now and, and, and hopefully will take up a lot of my writing time in the next six months is focusing in on kind of an evolutionary medicine and evolutionary perspective on how to live a long and healthy life. And then another one is kind of um, developing my course in human growth and development into a, into a textbook. Very cool. We look forward to that. And we also really enjoy interviewing people when they have new books out. So we'll probably be bugging you again when that comes out because we have fun with book interviews. Yeah. So Josh, this has been really, really fantastic. Thank you so much for, for all the time that you took to, to tell us about all the amazing things you have going on and also being really honest about how a lot happens behind the scenes that people are completely unaware of because I think it helps break down some barriers. Yeah, I hope so. Um, yeah, yeah. It, is, it is really, it's the sausage of science, right? It's the sausage of academia. Yeah, it's been